I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Romans 11, verses 13 through 24, as I read today's scripture reading. I am talking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch as I am the apostle to the Gentiles, I make much of my ministry in the hope that I may somehow rouse my own people to envy and save some of them. For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? If the part of the dough offered as first fruits is holy, then the whole batch is holy. If the root is holy, so are the branches. If some of the branches have been broken off and you, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root, do not boast over those branches. If you do, consider this. You do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in. Granted. But they were broken off because of unbelief and you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but be afraid. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Consider, therefore, the kindness and sternness of God, sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. And if they do not persist in unbelief, they will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. After all, if you were cut out of an olive tree that is wild by nature and contrary to nature, were grafted into a cultivated olive tree, how much more readily will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own tree again? You may want to turn to Romans 11 if you haven't already and keep your finger there. I want you to, for a moment, recall who is writing these words. This is the man born Saul of Tarsus, father a Greek, mother a Jew, and you know the rule. If your mother is a Jew, you are a Jew. So there's no problem there. He has full participation, full acceptance in that community. And indeed, he's trained very well as a young man, finds a place at the feet of Gamaliel, Paul, as he would later be called, yes, Paul, as he would later be called, is the one who was there at the stoning of Stephen, the one who stood in opposition to the emerging Christian uh, movement, one who at first did not see the way as the way, but saw it as a threat to the established practice of Judaism and the truth about God. It was that Damascus Road experience, a blinding experience, a revelation, that convinced him that he had been going the wrong direction and made him a founding champion of Christianity. It is generally understood, and I think this is generally correct, that Peter particularly, and also James, were extremely influential in the Jerusalem church and in the founding of Christianity, in the wake of Jewish rejection of the faith as a corporation. That is to say, the faith in Jesus Christ as Messiah, 
as Lord, as one who would be understood and one who was God incarnate, God with us, Emmanuel. So this man, whose father is a Greek, is also then a Roman citizen. He has a complex reality with one foot in a religious world in Palestine, as it were, and another in a, not a secular society, but certainly a pluralistic society and a pagan society uh, in citizenship in Rome. And what we see in Romans 11, if you've studied Romans, he, he, it's these marvelous chapters on righteousness by faith and an argument that continues to build starting with Abraham. You see, it's God's call and a response to it that makes this difference. Not birthright per se. And he argues that if the Jews are saved by birthright, then they're saved by birthright because somebody was called and somebody responded and therefore it was grace in the first place. So, uh, some people find Romans challenging and difficult, and it can be, but the arguments are, are marvelously wrought in Hebrew parallelisms and so forth until we get to this section, and it's a lament if you can see it that way among other things. This man who has had two names, who's lived between two worlds, who's fought valiantly on behalf of what would emerge to be two major religions, is struggling in his heart of hearts with what appears to be the rejection of the Jews, the rejection of Israel in the wake of their failure to embrace Christianity, to embrace Christ as the Jewish Messiah. Also, one other little thing I just, I've said before, and you probably all know, but I want to make clear. As I understand uh, Christology, as I understand the nature of the Messiah, the point was not necessarily to create Christianity. The point was not necessarily to open up and form a new religion, a new basis of loyalty, a new basis of orthodoxy, a new basis of power. My understanding is that Jesus was born a Jew in Israel, primarily there to minister to the chosen people, God's chosen people, and had come as a fulfillment of prophecies rendered through the historical prophets of the Jews. That he was to be Messiah, the anointed one of Israel, he was to be their Savior, their Christ. So when we understand that in context, and we get to Romans 11, we see the sort of ambiguity of feeling, or ambivalence, I should say, of feeling, and this sort of uh, rending that has taken place within the apostle himself as he thinks about what is meant and gives us both encouragements and warnings in this passage. As Jill so aptly read, he is speaking of the ingrafted branches. The context is set in the remnant 
of Israel, 11 verse 1. I ask then, well, let's back up to 1021. He cites this text, this passage taken from Isaiah 65. All day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. He's talking of Israel. So then of the remnant, and you all remember what a remnant is, right? A leftover. A group that remains after having been scattered to this place and that place. I ask then, did God reject his people? He's almost like arguing with himself. By no means, he says, I am an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. Don't you know what scripture says in the passage about Elijah? How he appealed to God against Israel. Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I am the only one left and they are trying to kill me. And what was God's answer to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace And if by grace, then it is no longer by works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. What then? What Israel sought so earnestly it did not obtain, but the elect did. The others were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes so that they could not see and ears so that they could not hear to this very day. And David says, may their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. May their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and their backs be bent forever. Hard words. Again I ask, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles, to make Israel envious. But if their transgression means riches for the world and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their fullness bring? And this is the internal argument that he will continue. What can I do to say, what can I say about this my people who have stumbled? What can I say about God's choice? What can I say about the nature of grace that is extended both to the people of Israel and to the Gentiles also? What can I say about the rending in my heart as I look at the rejection of one and the embracing of a wider other? For I am torn. Paul would say that. I don't think for a minute he is sorry to see the gospel go to the Gentiles because as surely as Peter and James were primarily responsible for the growth of Christianity within Israel and the Jerusalem church, Paul was the one who established the church in Asia Minor. 
through his missionary efforts. Yes, he had Barnabas and John Mark and others who did the same types of things. But Paul was the missionary of missionaries. Four separate journeys. Lots of correspondence. We think the Bible is a fairly thick book and most of us don't get through it. But this is just a small fraction of what these men wrote. We just don't have it 2,000 years later. Paul was a tour de force. Paul was a man of tremendous energies and charisma. Paul was a man of enormous self-confidence and great humility too. Paul was a man who did all that could be done from a human point of view. A zealot on every front. Whether it was pharisaical righteousness, or whether it was persecution of the Christians, or whether it was adoption of a new understanding, or whether it was the dissemination of the information about who Jesus was to a world, he was always on fire. And this split that he has one foot in the world of the Jews being a Jew because his mother was a Jew and the other foot being in the world of the Romans because his father was a Greek and he was a Roman citizen pulls him in this writing in this moment he's mourning mourning terribly the branches that have been cut off and he's recognizing the grace that has allowed branches to be grafted in. And in this passage, we understand salvation in a way that we hadn't previously understood it. Because as Paul gives his treatise on righteousness by faith through Romans, and it's also heavy in Galatians and Ephesians, as you know, but as he gives this treatise, A door in our lives and in our spirits is opened. And indeed, a door in the world of religion is opened. A floodgate. And through it, in the current age, more than a billion people have passed. Now, I want to take this and I want to go back to what I was talking about last week. A little bit. Last week I spoke about what Epiphany was in terms of how it's a season of revelation, about how and who and what the baby Jesus is. I noted, and I don't want to repeat myself too much for those of you who were here last week, but I noted that the angels who sang on the night of his birth sang to poor shepherds in their fields watching their sheep. It was wise men. Magi, probably not kings, although we sing of them that way. From the east, probably Persia, probably Zoroastrians. We don't have definitive information. Who observed the stars. They were astronomers in some sense, but also astrologers because they saw an auspicious heavenly body and took note of it and chose to follow where it led. They do the proper thing. They go first to the king, Herod, who is a tyrant and a cruel and insane man, 
And if you've been to Israel or will go to Israel in the future, you will observe that he built a tremendous amount of what was there in Roman times. This same insane man who orders the birth, excuse me, the execution of all the babies born in Bethlehem under two years of age, baby boys, is the man who builds the temple in Jerusalem that will be destroyed by Titus later. We noted that these kings came somewhere between a year and a half and maybe two years, two and a half years after the birth of Jesus. They were not there that night, even though our crutches and nativity scenes show them there. But they come to Herod, they seek his permission, they go to Bethlehem, and they go home by another route because angels of the Lord have told them what Herod's true intentions are. Just as surely as those same angels speak to Joseph and tell Joseph to get Jesus and Mary out and go to Egypt until the danger of Herod is gone. What I pointed out was that these magi had a spiritual sensitivity, had a receptiveness to the Spirit's leading. They were willing to hear the voice of God, and God was willing to speak to them. They didn't have to have necessarily what we would understand to be a correct or Jewish or Orthodox theology. They didn't have to have Jewish heritage. They didn't bring traditional Jewish gifts necessarily. They brought prophetic gifts. Gold which would sustain Joseph and Mary in Egypt. Frankincense and myrrh which were burial spices of tremendous value but pointed forward just as surely as the manger did to the nature of the king. And now I speak of course of Jesus. So there is this incredible prophetic peace that happens as these three kings or three wise men or three magi come. Ah, and so we say, what is revealed in this season post-Christmas about the king? We are seeing those not of Jewish faith coming to worship him. And in Romans, we're seeing branches grafted in. There is a shift taking place. Last week, traditionally, we would have studied the baptism of Jesus. And I want to make comment on that. We've noted that in the Jewish system, for anything to have validity, it required two witnesses, correct? And at the baptism of Jesus, are there not two witnesses? Who are they? Do you remember? The Spirit in the form of a dove or the voice of the Father and John the Baptist himself. Who was John the Baptist? The voice crying in the wilderness. Was he a prophet? Are you not sure? He was definitely a prophet. In fact, he was the preeminent prophet of his time. A great prophet. One so great, in fact, that those around wondered if he were not the Messiah. Angels 
foretold his birth. His birth, too, took place under miraculous circumstances. Though only a little older than Jesus, he would defer to Jesus because he knew he was the lesser light leading to the greater light. He describes himself as one not worthy to lace Jesus' shoes. And yet in Israel, he was a man of tremendous stature, a true prophet. Jesus comes, as I've said before, if you've, if you've been here a while, if you've uh, followed my sermons, you've heard me say this before, Jesus didn't need to be baptized at all for the sake of cleansing, for he was without what? Sin. sin. So if he was without sin, why did he need to be baptized for the remission of sin? Well, we usually answer that by saying he set an example, correct? And that's true. But what's also true is that Jesus was about to establish his own ministry, his own rabbinic school, as it were. And John the Baptist and the voice of the Father of the Spirit would stand as two witnesses as to who he claimed to be and would give him validity, would give him clout, would give him recognition in his ministry that would be important as he launched that. Jesus' baptism reveals something to us in this season about what's to come too. It will no longer be sacrifice for the remission of sin. Jesus will be the sacrifice, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But it will be rebirth spiritually. It will be a cleansing in the waters of baptism. It will be the signal the sign of rebirth, of being saved, of cleansing. And you don't have to be Jewish to be dunked in the water. You remember the story of Naaman? Okay, we've got to work on biblical literacy in this congregation. I'm trying. The story of Naaman is the story of a Syrian general who had a Jewish slave girl who told him of the prophet Elijah when he came down with leprosy, the most dreaded disease of the time. Naaman went to see this prophet and was outraged and inflamed and angry and ready to drive all the way home in misery and defeat when he was told to go to the Jordan River and dunk himself seven times. A servant managed to gain his ear and persuade him that he had little to lose by following the prophet's directive. And so Naaman did finally stop and humble himself and get in this dirty water and submerge himself once and twice and thrice until all seven, the totality of it was completed and perfect. And on that seventh, that wonderful number, 
of perfection and completion. On that seventh dip in the water as he rises up, he is what? Clean. A Syrian general. In the Gospel of Mark, I've preached this too, we'll see a progression in the understanding of who Jesus is a conversion, if you will, on the part of the disciples. First, Jesus is a rabbi, a teacher, a rabbi. Then he is a great teacher, prophet. Then he is on the order of Elijah. Then he is the son of man. And finally, son of God. And who is it that says, surely this was the son of God? A centurion who was of what nationality? Roman. Was he Christian? Was he Jewish? Pagan. And this leader of men, this man of war, in this moment of execution, is so struck by who Jesus is that he says... Surely this was the Son of God. And revealed to Jews and to all of us in the statement of this pagan Roman general is an identity. And a clue again about what is revealed in this child and in this manger. Well, I think you get it. I'm sure you've concluded Should I leave it unconcluded myself or should I walk you through the door? Romans 11, the story of Naaman, the story of the baptism of Jesus, which is why I referred to the story of Naaman. All of these things we look at in Epiphany tell us something about the nature of the king who came. Salvation has come to you by grace this day. You have been grafted in. You are Israel, God's chosen people. You are the redeemed, the saved, the chosen ones. And the warning, only warning Paul gives is if God could cut off the branches of the original tree, he can surely cut us off too. And so the call is to be champions of this Christ, this babe, who opens salvation to a wider world. In fact, the whole world. And I hope you'll take time in this season, in this week, in your life to consider the implications of what that means in terms of our pride and prejudices. In terms of those we mark inside the circle and those we keep outside the circle. In terms of God's capacity to speak to people's 
who don't speak the language we're used to speaking or sharing the orthodoxy we're used to preaching. What does this expansive, explosive grace of Christ mean as we minister to a world that never needed it more and has never been more hostile to it? May Christ reveal himself to each of us today. And in this season of revelation, Lord, we pray that the grace of Christ will go with each of us, transforming us as we have been grafted in. And so we thank you. Amen.